I've not had the joy to meet you, my name is Michael. I'm the lead pastor here. I get to open up God's Word. We are in a series in First Peter called Exiled. Would you open up your Bibles? First Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Um, the next two Sundays, um, what I'm going to be teaching on was profoundly controversial to the original first century audience. And so even for some people now, when they hear this teaching, which is basically Jesus' teaching, re-articulated here by Peter, there are actually many people who would consider this to be a deal-breaker for them to be a Christian to follow Jesus. And so what I prefer to do with anybody considering Christ is to kind of put the hard stuff on the front end and say, if you're going to follow Jesus, here are just some massive implications for your life, and here's what this is actually going to mean for you. So the original audience of 1 Peter were persecuted followers of Christ who are beginning to realize in very tangible ways that they are no longer at home in the Roman Empire. In fact, for many of these people, uh, this is written to a group of people in modern-day Turkey, for many of these people, uh, the Roman Empire, because of their affiliation with Jesus, has basically kicked them out of their homes, removed them from the city of Rome, and pushed them uh, north upwards towards Turkey. So this is a very broken and hurting group of people. Peter is their shepherd and their pastor, and so Peter is speaking to very, very personal circumstances. And one of the things we've been telling Village Church every single week that is that if you can be prepared for what Peter is preparing these people for, There is nothing this world throws at you that you cannot endure and handle to the glory of God. And so even though this might not be your context, one of the things we have to do is prepare for the what-ifs. That's been kind of the the setup for this series. Um, These are not our realities, but they could be, and they are all over the globe right here, right now, today, where we're going to be talking about the realities of this people group. People are dealing with this globally right now. This is their everyday reality. And one of the desires that I have also is that you would be filled with unbelievable gratitude to God because we have it good, do we not? And when you start to see these people's context unveil, it's like, wow, like, God, of all the places in history, right here, right now, I could have been born in any generation, in any century, and you have put me right here, right now, in honestly the most free society the world has ever known and ever seen. It's unbelievable. So, like, I'm very, very grateful, even despite the imperfections of any government you live in. The fact that we get to live here is unbelievable. So I I pray that you are filled with unbelievable gratitude. Here's their question. How do I follow Jesus in a land that killed my Savior and hates me? How do I follow Jesus in a land that killed my Savior and hates me? So, great news for you. The Bible rarely gives you easy answers to questions like this, where your heart is like, yay, that really made me feel like clouds and fluffy bunnies, right? That's not exactly how it works. And the reason is because the way of Christ, particularly the way of Jesus, when anything is difficult, is the complete opposite of what our heart wants almost every single time. So if somebody yells at you, what is the impulse of your heart? Typically, it's either aggression or passivity, passive aggression. And yet Jesus has a better way that is not in line with the direction that our hearts want to go. And so this is a very normal challenge. And so in counseling, my wife and I have this phrase that we use very frequently because many times we'll sit down with people. And by the way, we have to give this phrase to ourselves because our hearts aren't that much better or worse than most of you. Uh, And they come in and they have these ideas and these thoughts and these responses and they have a pattern of behavior. And then we look at them and we say, here's an idea. 
Do the opposite. Like, your heart wants this. How's that gone for you, right? Like, maybe the opposite of that, maybe there's a way to better life, better joy, bringing God more glory, more peace, better relationships, etc. And so most people, as we get to know them, their lives are train wrecks, and broken relationships are everywhere. And so we love to come in and say, like, maybe there's a different way. And the way of Christ is almost always the opposite of the impulse of our hearts. And this is why we open up God's word, because the further away we get from God's word, the more our hearts begin to take over, and our hearts don't lead us in good directions. The only heart that leads you in a good direction is one that is being formed regularly and transformed by Jesus Christ, the Spirit, and the Word. And the more you get away from those, our hearts just begin to kind of default. So we need this regular inoculation against the tendency and trajectory of our heart. So, Ville Church, are you ready to do the opposite? Some of you are like, maybe. (laughs) So whatever Jesus says, whatever Peter says here, representing Jesus, here's our response. Yes, Lord. All right. All mature Christ followers must seek to master the virtue of submission. Uh, In the Bible, some of your versions may call it subjection or be subject. Uh, The word deference, actually, it's one of my favorite words. It's one of my highest values for every friend that I have. Uh, I, I just, it's a passion of mine probably because I grew up with somebody who was probably pretty rebellious. And so the Lord did a lot of work in my heart and has shown me just a value, deference, subjection, submission. And, and the reason I value it is because my heart is so inclined to the opposite of this, which is rebellion. So what is submission? Let's define this. It comes from a, a Greek word, which is Upotasso or hupotasso. Two different words, hupo or upo means um, under, and tasso means command or directives. And so you put this together, and it's somebody who is submitting themselves under commands and directives. Let me give you like the Bible's probably meaning of this word, the best definition I think will be helpful for us. Submission equals willingly yielding to another's authority or will. Is it submission biblically if you have a terrible attitude? No. Is it submission if you're forced? No. Some of you are not here because of submission. You're here because of force, right? Your husband, your wife, your mom, your dad, your somebody said, you will come if you're going to stay in my house. This is what you're going to do. That's not submission. That is, that is forced. At, at its core, biblical submission is not getting your way. Uh, Now, next week, um, we're going to see what Peter says as it pertains to the household. We're going to get there. Um, That's going to get even more controversial and fun. We're going to have a blast. So if you want to, like, get mad or something, it'll be a great way to come to. But at its core, core, submission is when somebody else gets their way and we don't. Uh, this, This is just one of the most important virtues that the mature Christian is going to have to master. Let me say it backwards. You're not mature If you don't get this, love this, and are learning to defer, subject, and to submit. So let's do some training together. Uh, Christians are called to submit in three very different ways. Number one, we are called to submit to spiritual authority. Uh, There are a few categories of spiritual authority the Bible lays out. Number one is God. That is our ultimate submission, our ultimate spiritual authority. Any spiritual or human authority that contradicts God, they lose. Are you obligated to submit to any 
command or directive or decision that contradicts the will of God, the word of God, or causes you to violate your conscience or sin? The answer is no. Okay, God is it big time up there. Number two under this is elders, pastors, the authority of the office that God has instituted. In scripture, uh, the third category is husbands. We're going to get there next week and again, get all riled up and excited. It's going to be great. And fourth is parents. These are spiritual authority that God has put into our life, the four institutions, God, elders, husbands, and parents. The second aspect of submission in the Bible is to believers, one to another. So submission isn't just in spiritual institutions. It's also every believer, one to another. We are all called to submit one to another, to defer, to subject ourselves. We are called to give each other preference You're trying to figure out where to go eat dinner, right? Like Christians trying to figure out where they're going to go eat dinner. It's a nightmare, right? Eventually some like bully is like, we're going here. Ah, right. I'm too hungry to make it. No, but there's this idea of deference and submission of not needing to get your way and giving other people the delight of having their way. And sometimes what's really delightful about being in the body of Christ is is that sometimes people are, 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 are subject and they defer to you. And they do that to honor you and to bless you. And sometimes you get to pick, and that's part of it. But it's a very deferential culture and atmosphere. The opposite of this is we're demanding, demanding, demanding. I must get my way. I want it my way. It's my way or the highway. This way. This is where I, I want to go. And that's just not what the people of God do. We are a very different community. And so we submit, we subject, we defer one to another. The third one, this is where we're going to land today primarily. Uh, this is unbelieving or non-Christian institutions. This is where we're going to focus on. And so let me give you a definition here. Submitting to unbelieving institutions, it's an intentional decision to joyfully obey authority structures until I'm required to violate God's word or violate my conscience. This is a decision for us to submit to authority structures until they ask us to disobey God's word. Okay, so we have a lot of authority structures. We're going to get into this. Let me show you uh, the scope of our text. So open up your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 25, and I'm going to show you in just a few words here the main point of this text from the text. So here, here's what it says, verse 13. It says, be upotasso or hupotasso. Be subject, be deferential, be subjective. Again, different versions are going to say different things in your Bible, but this is the concept here. And what does he want? To every human institution. He's going to give you another command, which is in verse 18, be hupotasa to your masters with all respect. We're going to dig into that a little bit. And then in verse 21, he kind of gives this summary statement. He says, for to this hupotasa, this submission, you have been called. So whatever he's going to talk about, This is central to your calling. When you come to Christ, one of the first areas that he actually demands of every believer, man, woman, child, adult, doesn't matter, we are to be subject, submissive to human institutions. Now, if I'm you, I've got a billion, billion questions. Now, I'm not going to answer all of them, but I'm going to get to as many as I can, and I think this could be very helpful. But whatever Peter says... We're going to draw principles, and his principles are going to be non-negotiable. And so we're going to think about our attitude towards whether it's police officers, government officials, etc., our president, our past presidents, the list goes on. Let's look at verse 13. Little church, you ready to do the opposite? You're still like, eh, maybe, we'll see. Be subject, be hupotasso, be submissive. For the Lord's sake, for God's sake, people, 
Like this is so important to God. He's called you to it. And there is something about this that is really near and dear to the heart of God. Like this means a lot to him. And he says to do this to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Human institution number one is government. Uh, I want to give you just a little one-on-one on governments. Uh, human governments are in scripture and in reality, because scripture is reality, they are created by God. Scripture says that governments are created by God. Here's what the book of Acts chapter 17 verse 26 says. And he, God, made from one man, that's Adam, every single nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. He also says that he has determined the boundaries of their dwelling place. So that right now, despite the crazy of the world that you see all around you, that if there is a nation that still exists and that still has some level of boundaries, it exists because God has created it. That God made this thing. Now, some of you are thinking, why doesn't he end them? We'll talk about that. Number two, human government is are they are preserved by God. If it is still functioning anywhere in the world, even to any degree, it is solely by the preserving power of the word of God. So Acts chapter 17, verse 26, that I just read to you, here's what it says. That God has determined their allotted periods. Here's what that means. He hasn't just determined the scope of their territory. He has determined how long they're allowed to exist from inception to death. That if there is a nation on the planet that God is sustaining it because he, that is happening in his power. There are some nations we'd like to go like away forever, are there not? And yet God has not deemed that to happen yet. And so if it hasn't happened yet, it is really at the end of the day, under the power of God, God is preserving it. Although he may be, we see this, giving it over to itself. Um, oftentimes before a nation is eradicated from the face of the earth or an empire, God gives it over to its sin and debauchery and then it becomes its worst plausible self. Inevitably when God does this, sin turns each other on themselves. They devour themselves and eventually they leave themselves open to pray and stronger nations come in and overtake. Number three, human governments are ended by God. You back to the book of Genesis. There was a group of people in the promised land, and God did not give the Israelites the promised land for 400 years because the Amorites, the group of people that were living in the land, by God's estimation, weren't evil enough to justify kicking them out. Let me just, let me just tell you something. They, before they got kicked out, were more evil than the vast majority of the most evil nations today. And God looked at them and said, no, I I don't think it would totally be just yet to eradicate them from their land and give to the Jewish people. But there does get to a point where God is pushed to the edge after he's given a nation over to itself and, and they experience the turning in on themselves of their sin. They leave themselves vulnerable and inevitably a stronger, more powerful force that God has allowed to grow comes in and takes over. Human governments are ended by God. But number four, human governments are broken by man. Can somebody give me an amen on this one? You might live in the greatest country the world's ever seen, but it is broken and broken and broken. And who did it? We did we did. How are your taxes, by the way? <laughs> you can be inside a really good institution, and no matter how good the institution, it is still broken because we are running it, because we are a part of it. And this is just the nature. Any institution, organization, government, anywhere on the earth will not be perfect. 
You can apply this to the church as well. Some of you are like, but on Facebook and social media, you guys look great. And the person who's been there for two months loves it. And then you come and you realize who's here. Broken people, sinners, rebels, people who fight, people who demand their own way. Non-Christians are sometimes here, right? And you're like, well, this is not what I expected. There's people. You're here. You broke this place, right? The moment you walked into this place, it got more broken because you're here and I'm here. It's hilarious, but it's true. And so we just understand this is a part of governments. It's a part of every organization. They're broken by man because of our sin. Let's go to verse 15. This is the will of God. And by the way, the will of God is submission. That's what he's referring here. And the description he's about to give, he's also referencing back to this idea of submission. That by doing good or submission, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So here's my question. Okay, Jesus, Peter, what do I do if governments or institutions use my resources, my tax money, for evil? What about taxes that fund abortion? What about my taxes that fund the indoctrination of children in public schools and identity politics? Like, what do, what do I do about those things? And you know what's so interesting? I, the more I just study Jesus, the more I appreciate how he makes things so simple. Again, his teaching is never really quite what I want because there's a part of me that wants to be like justice and I want to like fight hard. Um, but Jesus chimes in and here's what he says in Mark 12, 17. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And he's referencing a denarii or a denarius. It's a coin with the image of Caesar on it. Render to Caesar, give to him the things that are Caesar's. It's got his name on it. It's got his face on it. Give it to him. And to God the things that are God's. Who bears God's image? We do. You give your body and your life to God, and you give your money. If they demand it, you're in their world. Do what you need to do. Give them, the, give them what they ask for. Okay, so here's my response to Jesus. So Jesus, you're telling me to give my money to Caesar, who's going to use that money to pay soldiers who in turn are going to kill me. Yep. Here's the principle. You're not responsible for what they do with it. You're responsible to do the things Jesus says to do. And if Jesus says pay taxes, you pay taxes. If Jesus says give Caesar what's Caesar's, you give to Caesar what's Caesar's. You are not responsible for what they do with that money. Does that, does that mean you are now passive? In Rome, it actually required a bit of passivity. Rebellion and revolution was typically not the best way to go under a dictatorship or an emperor in that time. We actually have the freedom to pay taxes with our left hand and then to rebel in a way that is honorable to God and to vote and to fight and to protest and do different things that are actually still legal and encouraged under our current constitution. That's amazing. Like, are you not glad that even though we are subject to pay Caesar what is Caesar's, we actually still have a voice to fight with? Some people in the world don't. And so even when you see this, you're not responsible personally. I, I give them taxes all the time. Gosh, you pay sales tax and city tax and state tax and whatever tax and this tax and real estate tax and property tax and moving tax and this tax and that tax, right? Okay, take it. I will not be accountable to what you do with that money, so says Jesus. I can live with that. I can go to bed at peace with my own conscience knowing I did what he asked me to do and he will take care of them and he will deal with them justly. Verse 16 says, live as people who are free, 
Okay, do these people feel free? No, if you talk to a Christian in a concentration camp in China right now, or North Korea, do you think they feel free? Peter would write the same thing to these people. He would look at them and say, you're, you're not a slave. You're free. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Let me just, let me put it this way. Christian, your freedom, it is never, ever defined by human institutions. Ever. No human institution defines your freedom. I love America. It, you're not free because America says you're free. You are free because God says you're free. You're free because the master of the universe has set you free. There's two aspects of this freedom. Number one, God is your master, not men or governance. If your boss, I'll give you an illustration, sends you to another business, are you subject to that business owner? Uh, Well, you're not under their authority per se, but you're in their place, and so here's what you're going to do. You're going to honor them. And that's sort of what God is saying. You might be in this world, let's be honest, but you're actually like not ultimately under this authority, but you're going to live because you're in this land as if you are. You're free. You're above this. You are a free man or woman. You are freed from everything. There is no master in this world but God. Live as if you are in subject to their rules. So when you go as a business owner, you send your employee over to another business. Now they don't work for you, but what are you going to do while you're in that other business, that other company? You're going to honor them. You're going to respect them. You're going to treat them with kindness. If they're bullies and try to push you around, you're going to play by their rules while you're in their building so long as they don't ask you to violate your conscience or your boss's rules. And then when you get out of that building, thank God you live under the rules of the master of your boss. And that's what we're like. Like America, at the end of the day, has no authority of you over you. God does. But while you're in this place, we live by their rules. We live by their rules. That's what we do. It's a very different mindset in terms of how we see citizenship. And this is what he's trying to get them to, is you are a citizen of heaven. That is your master. God is your master. You're under a constitution in heaven, which is articulated in the word of God. Your president is Jesus Christ. You're here. Honor everyone here. And, and, and they may harm your bodies. Okay. We're going to get to that in just a moment. So number one, God is your master, not men or governments. Number two, you can't force someone who is submissive to do anything. We just process this. You can't force someone who is submissive to do anything. Your submission steals their power. I'll give you an example. Bully comes up to a kid, demands his lunch. The kid responds with a smile. I was hoping you'd be hungry. Can I bring you anything specific tomorrow? Your submission steals their power. You can't force someone who's submissive to do anything. They're killing Jesus. They're putting a crown of thorns on his head. They're beating him. They have no power over him. They have no actual authority over him. Why? He's literally going wherever they say to go. Like, I know none of you like that until we start talking about Jesus, and this is what Jesus said. Some of you are going to find yourselves in this position where they're going to kill you because of me. Okay. Now, if you can stop it, if you can appeal, etc., in the Roman Empire, you couldn't appeal. That's just not the way it worked. It didn't work like that the way it works here. Jesus didn't fight. Jesus didn't call names. Jesus didn't revile. Jesus didn't do any of that. Nobody forced Jesus to do anything because he willingly did it. A submissive person cannot be forced to do anything. 
because they're free to something bigger. Here, here's how your brain needs to function. You're not paying taxes because they're forcing you to. You're paying taxes because you will submit to whatever they tell you to do freely. There's no force. Happily, joyfully, whatever you say to do, we'll do. As long as you don't ask us to violate God's word or violate our conscience, totally in. That's a very different mindset than the Christian who is angry all the time. The world is the world. The world does what the world does. Even the best countries in the world, it's still the world, does what the world does. So when the world does what the world does, right? When they have inefficient systems that charge us a ton of money to do things that we can't even see the benefits of sometimes, we just say, that's what the world does. And so we can be upset about it, right? But one of our obligations is to submit to it. Now, this is where we leave the Roman context and we enter the American context and we have the ability to vote people out. We have the ability to appeal. We have the ability to protest. And all of those are biblically permissible. The reason they're biblically permissible is because it's not rebellion. It's actually within the bounds of subjecting ourselves to the authority and the institutions that we live under. And so I have no issues with any of that. And so praise God, these people in First Peter, they're stuck in a position where there's nothing they can do about it. Leave your home. Okay. Leave the country. Okay. Leave the empire. Yes, sir. There's nowhere for them to go. And, and, and so I just said, I'm reading this. I'm just like, wow, God, there are actually people in the world who have to endure this thing. In the verse 17, he goes deeper. And I'm like, man, Peter, you were just not letting these people off the hook. He says this, honor everyone. What? Honor is the counterintuitive impulse to speak and think and feel highly about people. How do you honor the guard who kicked you out of your home, took all your stuff, took your money, split it amongst the other guards, sent you packing with your kids? What? That's the context. You get pulled over by a cop. The cop's grumpy and mean. Honor them. Your politicians make ridiculous decisions. Honor them. Like, this is not what these people want to hear. Village Church, are you ready to do the opposite? Because our hearts want the opposite of what Peter is going to be telling us to do. All right, Peter, who's everyone? He gives us three categories. The brotherhood, Christians, God, God, and the emperor, government. Like, does this leave anything out? It's like every, no. Okay, let's, let's, let's talk about the brotherhood. Your, your responsibility, this is how honor looks in the brotherhood, it is to agape Christians. You are to love them with a sacrificial, deferential, submissive love. With God, here's what it looks like. It says, fear God. The reason it says fear God, it doesn't say fear the emperor, is because you are not called to fear anyone in this world at all except for God. The only shadow of this might be a child to its parents as a symbol or a metaphor of the relationship with God. But there is no ultimate fear that we are to have to anyone but God. And here's what he's saying. Don't be afraid of the emperor. Don't be afraid of the people who can kill body and soul. None of that. Like he's just re-articulating Jesus left and right over and over. He's taking the philosophy, the life of Christ, the mind of Christ, and the heart of Christ. And he's giving it to us and saying, I get these are all counterintuitive and they're backwards and they're difficult and it's not fun. But you are to honor everybody. Believers, deference is like some mutual submission. Like this is the thing when we come here. Before God, it is he is the one we fear. Uh, you fear the one who is your ultimate master, the one you submit to. And he comes back to the emperor. And, and just in case you're wondering, like, honor the emperor. He might be a rebel against God and doing terrible, terrible things. And, and by the way, Nero is probably in charge at the time of this. And he says, 
honor this guy who inevitably is going to chop Peter up to pieces and kill him, hang him upside down, crucify him, kill these people. Like, how do you honor someone who's going to do this to you? Look at Jesus. And he's going to bring us there in a moment, but, but there's something about the way of Christ that is counter-American, it's counterintuitive to our heart, and it's a better way, apparently. Apparently, we're not first and foremost of this culture. We are to be formed to the Christ culture, which is bigger and different and far more counterintuitive than we could possibly imagine. Peter's not done yet. He's just getting started to be controversial. Ready to go to another level? Some of you are like, we're done. Can we go? This one's quicker. Human institution number two. Roman slavery. Servants. Be hupotasa, subject, submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Wow. Okay. So let's answer a couple of questions. Question number one, uh, what was Roman slavery? Because automatically you see servants, slaves, etc. This word actually in different versions is translated different ways. Um, but this is a huge stumbling block for so many people. And you will find that people who actually don't know their Bible very well, uh, who want to find issues with the Bible, will compare Roman first century slavery with 17th and 19th, 20th century slavery in America and the Western world. And the two are actually just categorically very different. Um, what we experienced in America over the last few hundred years was exponentially more atrocious than the vast majority of what they were doing or speaking to in this context. It doesn't mean either of them were great. What Paul's not doing is saying, upholding these institutions here, but he's telling believers how to live. If you're going to follow Christ in an institution that is human and broken because of sin, here's how I want you to do this. And so here's what you'd find in Roman slavery. A slave, also called a bondservant or a servant, they were generally permitted to work for pay and were even given the opportunity to buy their freedom, at which, at which case they would be called a freedman and a freedman, if you will. And then they would, many of them would actually take this privilege, they would take the last name of their patron, that would be their Roman master, they would take the last name of their patron as a sign of honor, and then many of them, even though they were free, would continue to work for this guy out of honor and respect, and because they already had rapport and a relationship. That's very different than what we understood in slavery in America, is it not? And so don't let people just kind of pluck out a word, slavery, just transfer all of this cultural historical baggage to it and then try to undercut the word of God. That's just not what it's talking about. And don't get me wrong, uh, what we understand as slavery in America, there were pieces of that in the Roman Empire for sure, but that's not what he's talking to in this context. Paul is not upholding that institution in any way. My second question would be, how could Paul uphold this institution? And I just want to tell you, he's not. But you also have to understand, he is not writing to governors and politicians when he writes this book. His greatest concern is not Roman or American policy. His concern is, I'm going to write to you who are slaves on the ground. You're not changing the institution. That's not going away. That just is. In your lifetime, you have no power or authority to do anything about it. Here's what I want to do for you. I'm just going to tell you, in light of this ugly reality, this is how I want you to live. You are to be submissive. Whether you are a freedman or you are a slave, whether they are just 
or whether they are unjust. And I do believe one of the greatest applications, by the way, for the modern church in this is this is very similar to employment. Some of you have terrible bosses. Some of you are terrible bosses, I'm sure. Some of you are terrible employees, right? And that's not what we do. We lead differently. We work differently. That's what he's saying. You can't control whether they're just or unjust. You can't control that. That is between God and them. And yes, it affects you. But listen, you are a master to God first and foremost. God has put you under the jurisdiction or temporal authority of this person. And your job is to honor everyone despite them. What? That does not make my heart happy. At all. Verse 19. This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, because of God, because God's in your brain, because you're thinking of Jesus, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. He's looking to broken people, and he's just saying, God cares and is so moved. This is so meaningful to him that when these Roman soldiers kick you out of your homes and you're thinking to yourself, what would Jesus do in this moment? And even though it is a counter to your heart and your impulses, you are making decisions to be honorable. I am telling you, they've done this to other people and you will be noticeably different and more memorable than everyone else. You are going to leave an impact. And I know you can't see it because what we want is we want to see the results now. The vast majority of the people who interact with us, we are just one little tiny bit of influence on them. But all of that, the Lord is bringing multiple influences of believers before their lives. It's not my job to get them saved. It is my job to obey Christ and to honor them while I'm in their presence and let God do the hard work of that. And if the opportunity comes to tell them about the hope that I have, Peter says in just the next chapter, we do this with gentleness and respect because the spirit of submission is what Jesus did, commands, calls us to, and moves through. What credit is it when you sin and you're beaten for it? You endure. Good for you. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, again, he says this, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Sometimes to follow Jesus means to lose influence. Sometimes to follow Jesus means your boss, your masters, your authorities, even sometimes your friends. Uh, They're not going to really appreciate what you're doing. Now, I want to put this on here because I just want you to see this. I want you to soak it in, and I want to reframe something for you guys because for many people, preservation of relationships is like the highest call in your life, And, and I think this is a better way to think of it. Preserving relationships is not the Christian's highest call. A highest call is submission to God's word in a spirit of love. I want all of the relationships that I have to be preserved. I want that really badly. Uh, I don't want to offend or upset. I hope that people are more upset about my ideas, which are Jesus' ideas, than they are about my attitude or my behavior or my posture or my tone or anything of the sorts. But my highest call is not the preservation of relationships. If it is, then I will compromise the word of God to preserve relationships. I'm telling you, in the upcoming years, it will not be possible to make everybody happy with all of your real true ideas. 
And there may even come a time in affiliation with the Village Church of Bartlett or any other semi-conservative, evangelical, Bible-teaching, Jesus-preaching church. It may not be that popular. But that's not my highest call. My highest call is submission to God's word, which is God himself and a spirit of love. So does this mean that we're supposed to be a carpet, walk all over me? No. Like nowhere in scripture does Jesus ever say, walk into suffering. Try to make your life really hard. Never. So like, I hate pain. I hate being uncomfortable. I don't like any of it. Okay? I hate it. I I don't choose pain. Okay? I never want to do that. Don't do that. Like, there's been ideas where missionaries have been like, we're going to go and we're going to like die even though we could get out. You know, it's like... There's no reason to unnecessarily die. Like, that's not, but Jesus never says to do that. So, I look at you and I would just say, you're not supposed to be a carpet to walk all over. And in America, by the way, you have appeals processes, you have HR departments. Gosh, how cool is that? You imagine if there's an HR department for your master? <laughs> it's ridiculous. We have it so easy. Christians never pursue suffering, but we endure it if it comes to it. So now verse 22 or 21, he says, this, he says this, for to this you have been called. To this is submission because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. Verse 22, Peter's anticipating every fleshly response to the persecutors and he again just points them to Jesus. He says, he, Jesus, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. By the way, this is cue for you when people do this to you. If you're going to claim Christ as your Savior, if you're going to imitate the mind of Christ, the heart of Christ, the life of Christ, you're reading this as a first century Christian, and you're saying, okay, what did Jesus do? i got to get that in my brain. All right, he did not revile. But they reviled me, and I said some really dumb words. Well, if you have the opportunity, go apologize, and and you just stop that. We don't revile. That's not what we do. Um, Do we deceive people? No, we don't do that. That's not what we're trying to do here. We're just telling the truth. When we suffer, do we threaten back? No, we don't do that. But here's what we do. We entrust, we continue to entrust ourselves to the judge who judges justly because that, Peter says, is what Jesus did. And so Jesus steps back and he just says, Father, you've got this. You've given me clear directives. I'm going to follow your directives. I'm not going to sin in the process. I'm going to follow you. In verse 24, he tells them to trust their body and soul to Jesus. Look at this. Jesus bore himself. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Listen, I know you're worried about your bodies. And and if you just remember this, you might be new, so you may not remember this, but Jesus told Peter before he ascended into heaven, basically said, you're going to die as an old man, and you're going to die like me with your arms outstretched, which is crucifixion, which did happen. But here's what that implied. It implied the method of execution, which is Roman crucifixion. It implied that persecutions and crucifixions were going to continue to amp up as Peter got older. Peter's getting older. And he's watching the persecutions across the empire amp up. So Peter can look at these people and he can say to them, listen, the worst isn't even here yet. Jesus himself told me that in my old age, I'm going to die by crucifixion. Like we know these things are getting worse and I know you're worried about your body. Jesus gives no guarantees about your body. Here's what he does say. 
healing is there for you. And when you get to the other side of death, which happens to everybody, whether by persecution, crucifixion, cancer, or otherwise, all of us have the same end. You will understand what it means that you were spiritually and physically healed by the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His concern is not to look at them and say, listen, I'm sure your bodies are going to be fine. I'm sure, I know it's getting hard, but I know it's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. No, he's, he's like, listen, this isn't getting better. This is just going to get worse. I can't promise you what's going to happen to your bodies, but I can promise you that your soul will be protected and that when this is all done and you get a new body, you will experience healing. And here's what verse 25 says. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Jesus is personally shepherding you watching over your soul and protecting you. And that's what they need to hear. And if we can prepare you for this, can we not prepare you for anything the world has to bring our way? All right, so what's number one? Use available checks and balances to seek more justice. Does Jesus want the kingdom of heaven brought to earth? The answer is Yes. Are the people of God supposed to be passive in the face of injustice? The answer is no. So we use whatever mechanisms our culture and context provide to seek justice. But I need you to hear me. Our posture and our attitude, our kindness, gentleness, and respect. Anything other than that, doesn't matter what you're doing, a good thing done in the wrong way is a sinful thing. And so here's, here's our general posture. You're online and people are slandering, calling you different names, and your every temptation is to dismantle their soul word by word and sentence by sentence, right? And it would feel really good in the process. We just, we just don't do those things. Gentleness, kindness, respect. I have never changed my brother, my little physical brother's minds through anger. I've never changed my wife's mind through anger. How much less will I ever change the person without the Spirit of God, their mind, through my anger, vitriol, and unkindness. But the believer uses every mechanism available to defend people, the unborn, those who are trafficked. We do everything we can within our power, but our, our challenge is this. We do this with gentleness and respect. Number two, in most environments, Christians should be the best employees. <laughs> if you've ever had anybody report to you ever, can I get an amen in the room, right? Not many, okay, so, all right. <laughs> I saw a handful, whatever. We should also be the best bosses in the world, right? But there is something about our posture of submission and deference, and you think about what Jesus and Peter want for the slave to the master. What they want is for the master to say, this is the best servant I have ever had. And then the servant gets to say, Jesus. That's it. That's what he wants. Number three, submission amplifies your gospel power like few other things. You will find you will lose gospel power when you don't submit, when you are demanding and aggressive, etc. There is something about not just the gospel itself, but the way it is proclaimed that imbues it with more power. And this is why Peter and Paul are both like, listen, we do this in a spirit of gentleness and love and respect and kindness. And, And you find that it's not just the message but we have the ability to do harm with the message by the way we deliver the message. 
And you see this all the time, don't you? And so I want to look at you and say, you will be way more effective with everybody in your life with a spirit of submission, kindness, gentleness, and respect. So if, if effectiveness is what you want, you'll learn submission. If aggression is what you want, well, you will not be very effective. Finally, number four. How do we prepare for the next five to ten years? So we're in the middle of a cultural revolution. We have no idea how it's going to end. Uh, because of the nature of technology and culture, what uh, appears to be our new reality is that it's going to continually move at the pace it's moving at, and it won't stop. The question is, which direction is it going to go? Is it going to go left? Is it going to go right? Is it going to go up? Is it going to go down? And, and we have some general ideas, and social scientists have better some general ideas, and theologians have general ideas, but here's what we just know. We don't know. So we don't know what we don't know. So we prepare for all the what-ifs, just in case the things that we fear the most actually happens. What do we do in the next five to ten years? Well, here's what we do. Our brothers and sisters globally around the world have already taught us how to do this. They've already taught us how to be Christians in really, really difficult contexts where the culture and the authorities don't really appreciate Jesus, you, or your message. And there's a few simple things you'll find all over the world throughout history. Number one is submission. That attitude of willing deference to authorities and other people's wills, it actually is one of the loudest voices of gospel proclamation. Here's one, service evangelism. They just love people really, really, really well. It's interesting. Like uh, You guys can debate about this in your community groups, but uh, there is something to be said about loving somebody, just loving them. They know you're a Christian. They know you're part of a church, building a relationship in this culture versus loving somebody and demanding they sit and listen to a full gospel presentation. It's interesting because what we find is that the latter seems to be less effective long-term and short-term. Now, again, debate that and think I'm a terrible person. Like, I'm an evangelist to the core. I love preaching the gospel. But there are just some people who don't want to preach the gospel. They don't want to hear the gospel. And it actually angers them, and it ruins the relationship. Like, I don't know how you handle that tension, but what we see all over the world and throughout history is that in these environments... People prayerfully wait and with appropriate times share the gospel and they wait for the Lord to open up doors. I think there's value in that. Here's a third one. Intensive child training and discipleship. Knowing that our children are going to be on the front lines 10x what we experience as 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds. And so we just invest in intensive child training. It's why at Village Church, we teach them the Bible as thoroughly as we can, and theology, and we have Awana, and all this other stuff, and, and we do VBS to hopefully help other kids come in and hear the gospel and believe, etc. But children are so important because literally the next generation is being formed before our eyes in the church. We should be raising up some of the most disciple-minded, Christ-focused, Bible-saturated kids on the planet. Why? Because as things get weirder, we get more focused. If you're afraid, afraid people don't do much good. They just kind of erratically do stuff. Focused people, they see the direction. They don't freak out. They just know, all right, here's what I do. Number one, submission. Number two, service evangelism. Number three, intensive child training. Number four, the church's responsibility, which, by the way, isn't just me and staff and elders. I'm going to put this on all of us in this room. No longer is consumerism acceptable any longer. We diligently seek the mind of Christ, heart of Christ, and life of Christ, because now more than ever, there's too much at stake to be one foot in the door, one foot in the world. This is not, there's too much. So we as a church have to have a very different posture about how we see following Jesus. I want you to notice, and this is so great to me, 
Peter never tells them, freak out. Oh my gosh. We're all going to hell in a handbasket. It's going to be the worst ever. Can you believe what they're doing? All the taxes. Never. His just brain is in different places. His brain is on making disciples and teaching these people how to just be honestly different than everything their heart wants to be and more like Christ. As we close, I want to ask you to just go back in time with me for a moment. In your mind, Jesus is being arrested. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Can he stop this? Yes, but he doesn't. He's being interrogated by Herod. Can he stop this? But he doesn't. Jesus is being tried by Pontius. Can he stop this? Yes, but he doesn't. Jesus is being beaten by guards. His body is being stripped to the muscle, bleeding everywhere. Can he stop this? But he doesn't. Jesus is dragging his cross to Golgotha, the place of the skull. Can he stop this? Yep, but he doesn't. He's about to be nailed to a cross. Can he stop this? Yep, but he doesn't. Why? I'm going to read to you Isaiah 53 as we close. 700 years before Jesus, he was oppressed. Speaking of the Messiah, the suffering servant that's coming, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, lambs, by the way, willingly go to the slaughter. And like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression... And judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land, out of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord, the Father, to crush him. He has put him to grief. Why? When his soul makes an offering for guilt, my servant will make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. I want to say two things to close. I don't know why God allowed these people who received this letter to suffer. All I know is that if we look to the pattern of God with the people of God, if you are suffering for righteousness, it is because he's probably showing other people the gospel through your life. Your suffering is almost never about you. Number two, Jesus was able to willingly suffer because he understood exactly why he was suffering. He was suffering so that on his body and soul and emotions, the full weight of your sin and my sin could be put on him, that we could receive his righteousness and forgiveness and salvation. Jesus understood that not one ounce of his suffering was going to be wasted. That even some of the guards that would kill him, that through his death they could actually have real forgiveness of sins. And so I want to speak to those of you who are believers and say, I don't know what the future holds for you, but here's what I do know. We suffer differently. And if you can be prepared for that, Well, it's time now in the small ways, comparatively speaking, to what they had to deal with and what Christians right now are experiencing, we learn submission in the small ways. 
For those of you who are not believers, Jesus' suffering is not wasted. It is not wasted because by it, it accomplished the only means by which you will ever in this world ever have forgiveness of sins and hope. And so I want to come before you and say, listen, the way of Christ is counterintuitive. It is backwards. It is not probably the life that the prosperity gospel preachers on the TV are telling you about. This Jesus way apparently is pretty different. It could cost you everything, but I'm telling you, if it is true, if it is true, the worst decision you could ever, ever make would be to be rich in this present world and poor in the world to come. I'm going to look at you and say, I don't know what the future holds, but I can tell you this, that Jesus is the shepherd and the overseer of all the souls of anybody who places their faith in him. I want to come before you and ask you, would you be willing today to place your faith in Jesus Christ for the first time? Do you believe that you are a sinner? Do you believe that you've fallen short of God's standards? Do you believe Jesus is God and they died on the cross for your sin? Do you believe in the historical resurrection as all the evidence points to you? Do you believe that your salvation is not because you're good, but because Jesus was good for you? If you are in line with any of that, some of you believe those things, but you have never made the decision to trust in Christ. Today's the day. Some of you, you've never even thought about it, but even as I say it, you're like, I believe that. I don't even know why, but I believe it. You believe in it because God has given you a heart to believe. Now, will you trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Uh, I want to just challenge you. Don't go out those doors without placing your faith in Jesus Christ. Because if he is who he says he is, which all of history and the evidence in the word of God testify to this fact, you need to have your sins forgiven and he is the only way. So if that's the decision you want to make today, here's what I want to ask of you to do. Nothing right now. I'll make you raise your hand or whatever. Uh, I want to ask you when you're done, would you come find anybody with a sign, myself, any of our band, come talk to any of us um, over to the prayer tent to my right, prayer tent, if there's no tent, over to the prayer <laughs> sign, over to my right and your left. I just want to encourage you, would you come tell somebody, I've made a decision to trust in Jesus today. Now what we do most Sundays is we celebrate communion. We're actually not doing that uh, today because uh, on days when there are baptisms, um, we don't do communion because they all point to the cross. Uh, the people being baptized are going to be in the second service, so I want to encourage you to do something. Uh, would you go online? We uh, live stream that uh, whole service, and uh, you can go on anytime you want, uh, any time of the week or the upcoming months, and just watch um, a woman in our church, Becky, who's an amazing woman who has given her life to the Lord, and the Lord's doing some amazing work in her heart and life. She's getting baptized, so um, go check that out. I'm going to take a minute. I want to pray for um, each one of you. And then we're going to stand and we're going to close and we're going to worship our King and Savior uh, despite what our life is like because he deserves all of it. Sound good? Let's pray together. Father, I want to just thank you for, first of all, for Jesus. I want to thank you for um, what you have done for us, for the model you have given us. And I want to thank you that what Jesus showed us wasn't just an example to follow, but what Jesus did on the cross um, actually purchased for us the forgiveness that we needed. In that historical true moment, there was an actual transaction where the fullness of your wrath and anger, righteous anger at our sin, was placed on him. And that anybody now who places their faith in Jesus, you've agreed to have put all of our punishment onto him. So we just are so thankful for that reality and that, that happened. And we're thankful that we now do not need to bear the full weight of our sin because Jesus has paid for it in our place. Thank you for the example that he gave us, though, because we need an example, because, God, there aren't many examples in this world that we get to see of how to suffer well. And so, God, I pray that even in the small ways for us, whether it comes to our bosses or our parents or our pastors or our government, that our attitudes, that our attitudes would be like Jesus.
You're the judge. God, the, the, great, the great judgment is going to expose so much of the insanity that we see and even more of the insanity that we don't see. Everything will be, be laid bare publicly and you will make right every single wrong ever done in the history of this world and you will be declared not just the justifier of the believers but the just God of the universe. We look forward to that day, but God, in light of the fact that you've got that under control, teach us now to live like Jesus with that spirit of submission that our hearts so desperately don't like. We love you, and as we come before you now, it is, again, our joy, it's our privilege, it's our honor to lift high the name of Jesus in worship. We love you. Amen.